Master used to, in the early years, he used to use energy as a demonstration of potential and power in order to awaken the audiences. So he would come running onto the stage, as all, most of you have heard, and then he would say, How feels everyone? How is everyone? Awake and ready. Okay, he wouldn't start talking until he got the audience awakened. And then if they weren't awake enough, he would have a few burly men come up one time in Boston. He did this demonstration of, of power and energy. And he stood against the wall and he had, he asked for some volunteers from the audience and he was going to demonstrate give a demonstration of strength. Well, I guess the Boston Police Department took this as a challenge. So six great big burly policemen came up and onto the stage and walking up and he said, okay, come here. He said, I want you to push me against the wall and I'm going to push you back. He said, are you ready? He said, yes. Are you sure you're ready? Yes, we're ready! And he arched his back and they threw him all back into the orchestra pit. <laughs> so Master had enormous energy that was part of the path. You know, one of the ways that God manifests, he manifests in a variety of ways. He manifests as peace, he manifests as love, he manifests as wisdom, as joy, but he also manifests as power. And that power is the power that keeps the universe going. I mean, the sun is an example of that power. We exist because of the existence of God in the form of the sun as power and as energy. Energy is the primal state of creation. Before there is manifestation, before there is uh, physical form, there is energy. Master said the world of energy is much more tangible than the physical world. The world of energy is much more tangible than the physical world. And it underlies us, our existence, everything that we are. Energy is universal throughout all of the created universe. And Master also would take a pinch of his flesh like this and he said, do you realize there is enough energy in a single gram of flesh to keep the city of Chicago in electricity for a week? And so he wanted to get into our minds that we live in a sea of absolutely limitless energy. So why is it that we get home from work and we can't wash the dishes? Well, there's a second law of energy, and that is the greater the willingness, the greater the flow of energy. Today's talk is using energy and willpower to face life's challenges. So that second law of energy applies to us. That energy is we're, we're living in an absolute sea of power and dynamism but we draw it into our consciousness, into our, the ability for us to use it is dependent upon our willpower. That's really enthusiasm, 
I'm going to talk a, more about willpower in a little bit. But for now, let's call that enthusiasm. So according to how much we say yes to life, that energy will flow through us or it will be blocked. Swami's first album that he ever produced, old um, 33 RPM vinyl disc, was the title was Say Yes to Life. And it had uh, some chants and some of his songs on it. And it was an attempt to get people to say yes to whatever circumstances they were faced. So whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whatever life's challenges are that we find are facing us, the answer to that is greater willingness, and that produces a greater flow of energy. So that greater flow of energy is produced, as I say, by by the greater the willingness, the greater the flow. But that can work to our advantage and our disadvantage because increasing the flow of energy does not necessarily equate to increasing the quality of the flow of energy. So quantity and quality are separate. A good crook is a dynamic, willing crook. And if he's good at it, he will be great at it. Um, forgotten the name. One of the famous crooks of the early 20th century, a reporter said, well, why do you rob banks? And he looked at the reporter and said, because that's where the money is. <laughs> well, speaking of criminal tendencies, I'm going to tie this into Swami's talk yesterday where he said, you know, if you're bad, you may descend for a lifetime or two, and you could go all the way back to the level of a germ. But this isn't all the way back to the level of the germ. These guys are not that far back. But this took place a little while ago at Hashi's house. Hashi has an old car, and it was had been parked out in her driveway or out beside her house for some time. And she came out one morning, and the car was missing. And her kids were visiting. She went to one of her kids said, did you use the car? Did you take my car? She said, no, Mom, I didn't touch your car. And they looked around, and they found the car off some hundred yards or so, uh, had gone across and then kind of driven up a slope. And Ganesha had a tent outside where he slept sometimes. It had just missed his tent, driven right by it. So they called in Peter Goring. They figured, well, we'd better get the sleuths on this one. <laughs> so they assumed that some kids had taken it and gone joyriding. But as they examined the car, what they found out was that two of the wires that go to the starter had been touched with each other. And some mice had gotten in, chewed the wires, and hot-wired hot the car. <laughs> So, so either that is mice with special powers or what Davy and I think is more likely, it was a little gang of them that got reborn as mice. And they got together and they said, remember how we used to hotwire those cars? 
I think we can do it again. It's so, anyway. So power and energy are produced by a flow of willingness. Now, what is will? Master defined will specifically. He said, will is energy plus desire focused on a goal. And so energy plus desire. We live in a sea of energy. If we focus that energy through a particular desire that we have, a particular goal that we have, that produces a flow of energy and uh, the ability to accomplish. Master also said that all of our challenges are challenges of will, challenges of our willpower. Will we keep going at something or will we properly direct that willpower? What is the aspect of our ability to channel energy? And all of life's challenges are could be said to be um, encapsulated by are you channeling enough energy because it has a universal source to it and are you directing that energy toward the right goal? Now, in order to get to the right goal, we have to ask another question, which is obviously what are the right goals? But that because our soul is identified with our ego at this point in time, that question is obscured to us. So I want us to do something for just a moment. This is a little visualization. Just close your eyes. And I want you to visualize yourself, not as a body, but as a ball of light a ball of intelligent energy. And that ball of light, now try to get that clearly in your mind, that ball of light. That ball of light has taken on many, many, many different forms. Swami said, Yesterday that it takes five to eight million years to get to the human level and then probably millions of lifetimes after that. So just visualize that ball of light through centuries and eons and eons of time taking on different forms. And in each of those forms, it learns something, it remembers something it develops some tendencies, some qualities, some habits, until all of those tails stretching out way, way out past the center of the galaxy, ending finally in you right now, sitting right here. Okay, open your eyes. So that's our soul. And that's much, much, much more who we really are than the current body or the current tendencies that we carry with us right now. Swami has said a very, very helpful definition of the ego. Master said the ego is the soul 
that is identified with the particular form that it's in right now. So the ego, as Swami defined it, which I find extremely helpful, is that your ego is a bundle of self-identifications. And so all those things that you think right now, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm smart, I'm pretty, I'm strong, I'm healthy, all of those at some time in the past, whatever your ego was, you were thinking of very, very different qualities to yourself. I'm a good thief. I can hotwire cars better than anybody. You know, so that what we have right now are not is not the real self. It is an aspect of, one might say, a tiny little focus of our real self. It's like tomorrow night we're going to see the peace treaty. And the people playing a role in that peace treaty, if they're going to do it well, they're going to take on a certain bundle of self-identifications or self-qualities that make that make up that character. And because it's quick and God doesn't hide from us from one day to the next, they will remember that they aren't limited by the qualities of the character that they take on. But God, in his infinite wisdom, allows us to come into a life and forget, at least on a conscious level, forget the role that we played last time. It's really not much more. Uh, uh, Swami is having uh, uh, lo loaned me a book called Ghosts Among Us by James Van Prague, I think his name is. Anyway, it's very, very interesting. He's able to see ghosts or see um, disembodied spirits, so see the soul outside of a body. And one of the things he says, everything he says is completely consistent with Master's teachings, but there's no change in appearance, basically. When you leave the body, many of the disembodied souls that hang around the earth don't even realize they're dead. And that's why they're so focused on, well, remember I said uh, will is uh, energy plus desire focused on a goal. They can be so focused on a goal that everything else is obscured except the accomplishment of that goal. And the fact that they happen not to have a body doesn't seem to occur to them at this particular time. And so they're, they're really focused on that. But mostly we understand that we pass away and that we're in a spirit body and then we move to the astral plane and we come back here. But in between those two, God obscures from us the memory. And partly it's because if we remembered too much, see the conscious mind can't hang on to all that information. It can't hold it. It can't work with it. And if we remembered all of the past things that we did, I mean, here we are in a single lifetime, one out of millions and millions that we've lived as human beings. So we're in a single lifetime and people get weighed down with regret or with memories or with sadness or with self-limitation or with some form of limitation that it's, it's 
as if we have a certain few things to learn and then we kind of wind down like a like the car going up the slope and it runs out of steam and just stops there and so as we reincarnate from from lifetime to lifetime we don't carry with us consciously the memory of what we have been and what we have thought and how we've acted in a previous lifetime the great souls do those who are no longer attached to ego it's because ego works on duality and limitation and with that we forget who we were in the past lifetimes but when we aren't tied to ego we remember master remembered in the gita krishna says the difference between us o arjuna is that we have both lived many many lifetimes but the difference between us o arjuna is that i recall my past lives whereas you do not and so that's playing the enlightened soul and the devotee aspiring to become enlightened so we don't remember necessarily our past lives and it's god's grace that we don't so what do we carry with us from lifetime to lifetime we carry all of our tendencies we carry our attitudes we carry our potentials and so all of the things that we have built up and um, acquired in past lifetimes we carry with us and that can be good and bad and that's why it takes so long many many thousands of lifetimes Swami uh, one time was with master and a disciple had told um, Swamiji that he had had a vision of being with master back in Lemuria centuries uh, eons ago I think the thought is Lemuria was 30 50,000 years ago and so a long long time ago and um, master had told him that was a true vision and so Swamiji went to master and he, he wanted to know if he had been with him and so he said master have I been with you for a long time like that and master with a twinkle in his eye said it's been a long time that's all I'll say <laughs> and then Swami said does it always take so long master said yes the desire for name or fame or other things takes one away lifetime after lifetime so here's a soul that has gotten to the point remember yesterday Swami said it takes very 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 good karma even to want to know God he said that to the same guy that remembered back to Lemuria he always he was a moody fellow um, at any rate it takes very 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 good karma even to want to know God and here it was 60,000 years ago let's say that he was with a guru which is kind of the epitome of the circumstances that we need to know God and still it takes a while there's a momentum God creates uh, the world with a momentum that goes out into outward experience it gets more and more complex the more it goes out into outer experience so it starts just with the 
aspect of consciousness. But then that consciousness produces a creation. And along with that creation, not simultaneously necessarily, but that consciousness produces individualized aspects of itself, the soul, that individualized aspect that makes up the essence, that ball of light, produces that ball of light. And at first, it doesn't have too many qualities or tendencies or attitudes, but it has a momentum, has a momentum of going outward. And it goes first into the causal world, world of thoughts, into the astral world, world of energy, and then into the physical world. And in the physical world, it kind of goes splat against the wall. And as P.G. Woodhouse would put it, somewhat more of its insides were on the outside than one would have liked. <laughs> and so we're kind of like a tomato up against the wall. And what does it mean that our insides are so, somewhat more on our outside? We think that what's happening is happening outside of ourself. That momentum takes us out and we give our happiness out to the things of the world. I want to weave in the three laws of universal laws of happiness. The first is when that soul goes outward from God. Remember yesterday that Swami talked about Sanatan Dharma, the eternal religion, the fact that everything proceeds out from God and then returns to God. As we, as the universe or as we as a soul proceed out from God, we carry with us the essential quality of God. Master talked about it as being like a drop of the ocean, which is contained in three bottles, a bottle, a, a physical bottle, an energy bottle, and a thought bottle. And we have to get rid of those three bottles, but we carry within us the memory of our oceanness, of our infinity. Most of all, we carry with us the three qualities that Shankara, uh, Adi Shankara, uh, defined as God, Satchitananda, ever existing, ever conscious, ever new bliss, as Master put it. So we carry, the soul carries that memory with it. But when we come into the physical world, we can't truly express those qualities. Ever existing? What do you mean ever existing? Oldest man alive died at 114 years just last week. That can't be ever existing. Physical life has a beginning and an end, apparently, to us. And I don't know whether it's the majority of people or the minority of people, what does it matter? But a lot of people feel that at the end of this body, that is the end of your life. You're no more, you don't exist anymore. My father believed that way. Uh, he had a number of delusions. <laughs> All fathers do, don't they, let's face it. Mark Twain said, it's amazing how much my parents learned between the time I was 17 and the time I was 21. <laughs> and so, at any rate, we have that complete existence. We have 
uh, complete awareness. And that drives us. That's the drive. Remember when Swami was talking about the experience yesterday with Darwinism and that um, professor? The essence of what he said is it is the awareness driving evolution and the evolutionary process is not just random. It is a process of that awareness trying to become more and more and more aware. What we're trying to do, uh, evolution is just a lot of souls that are there going through a learning process. And what is happening is that we're all trying to return back to the realization of our essential nature, which is complete awareness. So eternal existence, complete awareness, and ever new bliss. And that's the essence of our nature. But as each of those get translated down into succeedingly lower vibrational levels, they um, express themselves differently. And so ever new, ever uh, expansive bliss ends up expressing itself in terms of happiness. And on this level, we ascribe our happiness to things outside of ourselves. So the first, but the first law of happiness is the theme of Master's first book, The Science of Religion. The first law is everything, everybody is motivated by exactly the same motivation, which is to seek happiness or to avoid pain. Now that has a very important corollary for us. That means that everything that you do is motivated by the fact that you think that that will give you happiness. Now most of the time we aren't aware in our actions that that's what we're after. If we would just stop for just a moment and ask ourselves, is this line of energy or line of activity or this thing, is that going to help me achieve my goal, which is happiness? Half of the time we would say, I, I don't think so. And we wouldn't do it. But we don't stop to think because of that outward going momentum gets us into the thought that experiences, outward experiences will create happiness. But outward experiences don't do it. It's our reaction. So the first law is that we're all, all of the time, through everything that we do, seeking happiness or seeking to avoid pain. The second law is that we tend to because of the outgoing momentum, we tend to see things as being outside of ourselves and that our happiness is outside of ourselves. But the second law, and this is the most important thing that I'll say today, the second law of happiness is that our happiness is dependent not on events, not on things, not on possessions, none of that. It is dependent wholly upon our reaction to the things that happen to us. And that's a very, that is, one could almost say that that, solving that question, that problem 
is the whole of the spiritual path. Because if we can get outside of the reactive state to things, then we begin to see things much, much differently and much more clearly. In fact, the great, great grandfather of yoga defined yoga, defined union with God as basically as getting, out, getting beyond the reactive state. Patanjali said his first four sutras were, and now we come to the study of the science of yoga. That means that when we have very, very, very good karma, we finally ask the question, how do I get out of this? And then, now, we come to the study of the science of yoga. His second one is that yoga is the neutralization of the waves or the vortexes of chitta. Master defined chitta as the primordial feeling nature of our consciousness. So, in terms of what we're talking about today, the second one is yoga is the neutralization of the reactive process. So here we are trying to find happiness. That's all we're trying to do. We're ultimately trying to get back to bliss, but we're trying to find happiness. And so we have our happiness not outside of ourself, but it's in the reactive process. Now there's a great trick here. What Patanjali is saying is that as long as that reactive process is going on, we're never going to find what we're after because the bliss of our soul lies beyond the reactive process. And so somehow we have to get over the reactive process. The next two are equally interesting. He says at the time of the neutralization of the vortexes, or whirlpools of chitta, at the time of the neutralization of the reactive process, the seer rests in his own self. So we just rest then in who we truly are. The soul knows itself as an aspect of God and we're merged with God. The fourth one is the real killer. <laughs> at all other times, that means any time we happen to have the reactive process going on, for instance, the last two billion years. At all other times, the seer is disturbed by the uh, waves of plus and minus, or the seers identified with the um, ramifications or the, the movement. So we get identified with that. So the second law of happiness is that the whole of our happiness is dependent upon somehow getting beyond that reactive process. Well, why do we get into the reactive process in the first place if this is the whole game? Well, that's the way God keeps the universe going. It's by more and more complexity, more and more diversity. It's, it, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. As Swami said yesterday, no saint has ever come to realization and said, oh, what a scam. They say, oh, what a marvelous show. It isn't like God is doing it to us. We are God. God is playing with himself. 
and he enjoys playing in this way. Some, I mean, we have ramifications of it. We like complexity. Reminds me of a cartoon I saw. There were these two cavemen going like this, and one of them is saying, dang, tied again. <laughs> and underneath was the caption, rock, paper, and scissors before paper and scissors. <laughs> And, and so we like complexity, we like variation, and as, as the consciousness starts going into variation, Swami said another very, very interesting key thought to us last year in, uh, when we were in India. I, was, I had had this experience flying over, and on the plane we were with I don't know how many were on the plane, like 300 people on the plane. But we were with that 300 people for like 12 hours. How often are you ever with 300 strangers for that long? And over that period of time, I just, something kind of, the absolute complexity of it all, every one of those people had a life that was just as rich as my life and had people in it, and those people had other, and that enormous complexity of it, and it, it was getting a little bit overwhelming. And I was talking with Swamiji about why does God create so much complexity? And his answer was absolutely stunning. He said, it is the nature of joy to expand itself. And so anything that we go into, it is the nature of that to expand on itself. So we start down a line of something that seems attractive. I think I'll collect something. I'll collect rocks. And then I'll collect not just rocks, but I'll collect agates. And there's a whole world of agate collectors. Then I won't collect just agates. I'll collect just agates from Arizona, Jasper or something like that. And then there'll be a whole world. There are probably magazines dedicated to collectors of only Jasper from Arizona. I know that there's a magazine or was dedicated to only people owning quarter horses. I saw one in a dentist's office one time. Walked in, had to wait sat there, entered the world of quarter horses, which I'd never thought about. And it was complex enough to have a whole magazine and then I'm sure went on from... So it's the nature of complexity, the nature of uh, joy to expand itself. And that goes more and more and more into complexity. And we get caught up in that complexity. It's like the little conscious mind has only the ability to focus on like one thing at a time. In fact, literally, we have, with the conscious mind, the ability to focus on only one thing at a time. Multitasking, we hear about, nobody multitasks. They serial task. And so, if you think you're multita multitasking, what you're doing is spacing out a number of things in a serial manner. So, so you move from one to the next to the next and then kind of cycle back. But you aren't holding all of that in your brain at the same time. So 
The conscious mind is not set up in order to be able to deal with the enormous complexity of it all because the outward energy, it's the flow of energy going outward that creates the complexity. Sri Yukteswar said, God is simple, all else is complex. I had this dream one time where I was looking out a window and I was absolutely fascinated. I had some awareness that it wasn't quite normal because I could see that I was there was a tree and the tree was popping up leaves and there were already like millions and millions of leaves on the tree. And so in that dream, it was this enormously complex living organism that was growing and creating more and more and more leaves. And as long as I stayed in that dream reality, that tree was enormously complex. When I woke up, how complex was it? Ah, isn't that interesting? That was a dream. It was just some energy going, creating a tree. So as we pull back, but as we go farther and farther into the dream and farther and farther out, we get caught in all of that complexity and we just lose ourselves. That's why it takes, well, as I with you for a long time, it's been a long time, that's all I'll say. Desire for name and fame and collecting Jasper <laughs> takes one away again and again and again. And so what is the answer to it? So our happiness is dependent upon stopping the reactive process. Our bliss is dependent upon quelling that tendency. So what is the answer to it all? The answer to it all is that if we're going to live in and make progress spiritually in this age of energy, we have to take, pay much, much more attention to the reactive process that's within us than we do to things themselves. Now, fortunately, the whole of our path that Master brought us is designed in order to help us take control of that reactive process. That reactive process, speaking in terms of yoga, has to do with the movement of energy up and down in the subtle channels, the ira and the pingala, in the spine. And every time we react positively, it moves up a little. Negatively, it moves down a little. Up and down, up and down, up and down. And gradually... Remember, over lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes, what we're really collecting, the tendencies, are the tendencies for that energy to move upward or downward in association with particular things. I want this, I don't want that. I love this, I don't love that. And gradually we produce tendencies which are movement of the energy the flow of energy towards something or away from something. By the time we're here, most of our energy has become committed to moving toward finding union again. Why? Not because we've suffered so much. That's part of it. And Swami talked about that. But it isn't the only part of it. It's not that we've just suffered so much. It's that we have also been happy so much and then suffered and then we're happy 
and then suffered, and then happy, and then bap, 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 bap. Like to this joke about uh, uh, two policemen. Um, what are they called? Carbonieri. Carbonieri. There are lots of Italian jokes about Carbonieri. And so, uh, and they're always portrayed as not very bright. So <laughs> one Carbonieri is driving, he says, you know, I'm not sure the, uh, uh, the, the turn signal is working. Can you roll down the window and look out and see if it's working? And one says, now it is, now it isn't, now it is, now it isn't, now it is. Adesso si, adesso no, adesso si, adesso. Anyway, so it's this alternation, not just the negative side, but also the positive side and the fact that nothing stays still and it always changes and it always rotates and finally, Master said, we get to the point of agonizing monotony. Agonizing monotony. Why? The soul, our true nature, is after bliss. Happiness is on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. And we finally get to the point where we say, there's got to be a different way. And that's when we turn inward. Our techniques of our spiritual path are all designed specifically to help us stop the reactive process. That's what Kriya is all about. It's movement of energy around the spine to draw the energy, our consciousness, away from those outer channels into the inner channel. And then finally, there's another duality, which is the base of the spine and the spiritual eye, which is why we concentrate here. So what we're really trying to do in a scientific way is we're trying to withdraw the energy, focus it at one point, and stop the reactive process. Master said everything is governed by the law of magnetism. Magnets always have a south pole, a north pole, a plus and a minus, and a neutral. And what we're trying to do in meditation is we're trying to withdraw the energy so that we can get the south pole to come up to the north pole and neutralize everything and then the reactive process stops. We don't stop. Our soul goes into superconsciousness, which we'll talk about on Thursday, but we don't stop. Our consciousness then expands, expands to our own soul nature, which remember is infinite joy, infinite consciousness, and infinite life or existence. Now, in addition to meditation, and I'll end with this, there are a few things that we can do outwardly to help stop that reactive process. Again, we're completely dealing with ourselves as energy beings here. This is using energy to overcome life's challenges, energy and willpower. So the first thing that we can do outwardly outside of meditation is that we can try to emulate the position of the soul. The soul is the observer. It just observes us doing these things. It's caught and not caught at the same time. And so we can, as we're going through things, especially as we're, there, there's a time between when an event or a difficulty or challenge starts, when it just starts, but before we're totally caught in it, there's a space in there. 
uh, friends of ours were having a uh, husband and wife were having an argument, a discussion, <laughs> and kind of a little ways into it, the husband stopped and, with a twinkle in his eye, said, "I'm not caught yet. Are you caught yet?" <laughs> and so there's that space, isn't there? Before we're really caught in something, try to catch that space. It's very valuable. Catch that space and observe yourself. Observe your thoughts as if you're observing a brother or a sister going through them. You're observing your thoughts. You're observing your reactions. You're observing your moods. And as you observe, you have control that you don't when you're just caught in that. Okay, so the first is to become an observer. Another is that every night, mentally create a bonfire and throw all of your attachments and all of your likes and dislikes, the reactive process. But the attachments are the reactive process of desire that has lumped up into a glob. So take that glob always associated usually with the lower three chakras somewhere, and throw it into that fire and let it melt. And that's a very powerful thing because if you can do it and really enter into it, it's like you get a, a refresh. You hit a restart on your computer and all the bad programming stops for a little while. And so uh, try to do that. Try also to use in the midst of things Use the breath as a tool to stop the reactive process. So use the breath and calm your breath because remember this reactive process is in the irda and the pingala, the deep spine. It is attached to the breath. And if you use the breath, it also calms that reactive process. And then finally, try to take, try to actually feel the energy in your heart, especially the reactive energy that's there, and offer that up to the spiritual eye. That will neutralize it. Master said as you offer, they're all, it's always polarity, and as you offer the south pole, represented by the disturbed feelings of the heart, to the north pole, represented in this case by the spiritual eye, you neutralize that magnetism. You neutralize that battery. And so by feeling, try to feel your heart, and then offer that heart up into the spiritual eye. And then finally, the best practice of all is to commit all of your energy to God and Guru, to attunement with them. But others are going to talk about that, so I won't talk very much. But that is the practice above all other practices, to, to give all of your, remember what will is, energy plus desire committed to a goal. If you get your whole will attuned to the will of, the God, of God and Guru, then they will direct your life to the shortest possible path to self-realization. <laughs>